Hi everyone, this is Kim C, and you're listening to the Year of Underrated Stephen King. This is a one-woman book podcast that highlights the underrated Stephen King works in search of beautiful, unexplored storytelling. Hello everyone, do forgive the delay. I'm so sorry it's been a minute since we've been together. I was recently bopping around on a mini holiday in New York City. I just was super craving a slice of springtime in New York and found myself bouncing around Brooklyn, visiting some friends, and then I made it over to Manhattan, heard some jazz, ate some pastrami, and I may have coincidentally, accidentally, purposely ended up on East 35th Street in search of 249B, the brownstone. If you know, you know, but we're not gonna gush too much about the Manhattan Club, one of my favorite settings for two particularly stellar Stephen King installments, one short story and one novella. I can nerd out with you guys on another time in regards to the Manhattan Club, but today we're here to focus on this super intriguing underrated novel, the subject of today's episode, 2002's From a Buick 8. Oh, dear friends, I really enjoyed this one. Oh my goodness, this was very, very different in an awesome way, folks. And for whatever reason, I don't exactly know why, I keep coming back to the adjective of sophisticated, guys. This is a very sophisticated work, very philosophical. It incites a lot of rumination. And overall, I think this was an incredibly deep work, a rich work, and one that definitely should be examined by constant readers and new readers with a big microscope. We gotta do it, guys. We just, this one is special. And Throughout my reading, I came to the conclusion that this title belongs on the advanced king shelf. And what I mean by that is I I feel there's a few king texts out there. We've covered one or two on the podcast thus far. They really deviate from the typical linear narrative of the fiction formula King works with, especially the typical formula King does so well, which we love him for, where he's got a rad setting, a super cool, likable protagonist, creepy, irredeemable villain, or complex villain, we love those too. There's the conflict, we've got an engaging supporting cast, plot arc, end scene, right? This is Stephen King with his power punches, his popcorn books, we love them, we love them. This novel, folks, is not that. And because it's not that, I celebrate it. There's so much, there's so many cool things to unpack with this one, guys. And I'm going to expand a little bit more on what I mean by the advanced kink shelf. And for those of you who have hung out here a little bit, if you've been spending some time with the year of underrated Stephen King, you might know I'm a super obsessed Lisey Story fan. Oh my gosh, guys, you know, that's a novel I, I tend to speak about ad nauseum. I love that book for so many reasons. One of the reasons I adore it, of course, is I feel 
deal. It's a capstone king book. Capstone meaning senior level. And Lisi's story is the example of a book that you need to defend to the your thesis committee. It is the hardest of the hard. It is polarizing, experimental, difficult, hard to get into. But the journey is completely 100% worth it the deeper you dig. So I'm using Lisi's story as an example. It's kind of like the cornerstone of one of the most advanced King books I've ever read in my life. The story was complex on every level. The writing was insane. Structurally, it was wonky. The language was bananas. The timelines. Lisi's story is a Rubik's Cube of a King book, guys. And while I wouldn't put From a Buick 8 in the Capstone King novel category, I would not situate it next to Lisi's story in terms of complexity because From a Buick 8 is pretty accessible. It's pretty easy to, to, to get into in terms of latching on to a narrative. I'm going to put it in the advanced category, which is one level below capstone. So this is up there, guys. This is one of those reads you need to read slowly. You got to think about it. You definitely need to discuss it, hopefully in a book club setting, or hopefully these podcasts can assist you. But there is some deep depths here, folks. There is depth there's deep depth and there is philosophy and even king himself declares it so as this is from the author's note in the back of the novel i'm reading specifically out of the american hardcover on page 354 king says this story became i suppose a meditation on the essentially indecipherable quality of life's events and how impossible it is to find a coherent meaning in them okay everybody we're taking attendance in philosophy 101 yes we are that's what i mean guys like this is deep stuff this is a rich work oh my goodness but before we dive in to all the good things we have to talk about the fact that i have heard this novel referred to it's put in the same company as dreamcatcher and a few other novels in the immediate first few years after king's accident It's been referred to as a trash book, guys, and I think that's incredibly harsh. I really do. Um, Personally, you know, granted, I haven't read all of the King works, especially the first few post-accident King books, but first of all, I don't feel any King novel is worth being called a trash book that's no 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 no. there is always treasure in the rubble and the tommy knockers is proof of that as i'm sure a couple other king titles that didn't fare so well in the court of public opinion but a trash book from a buick 8 is not dear listeners it is quite the opposite and trash book i just i can't let that go there are always things to celebrate among all king works because it's stephen king for pete's sake but this title is exquisite my dudes it has got this stuff i love to nerd out about and if i had a semester that was longer i would really think about having this as a class text like this would be something i would teach my students if i could we will talk more about that later but 
I'm not sure if I mentioned this earlier, but I have never read from a Buick 8 before. So I just completed my first time reading it, and I had the traditional hardcover with me and read along with the audiobook because that's my favorite way to do it with King Books because it allows for maximum cerebral absorption. And if you haven't given it a try, please do so. Especially if you've given from a Buick 8 a chance in the past and maybe you shelved it or you haven't even started it because you heard it was a post-accident king trash book, for which it is not. But I highly recommend that you get the book in tandem with the audiobook. It is a whole new world. We've got some brilliant actors narrating they bring a wonderful performance to it but it was my first time reading from a Buick 8 and I okay I can't even guys with this next point so one of the huge huge revelations I had with this novel was that as I was reading it remember very first time making my way through and I'm hitting these points in the narrative where certain characters are, are sharing these very real moments and these very pivotal areas of their life that are just soaked with grief. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is just all of that post-accident reflection. But one of the things I realized once I finished the novel was that King had written an entire first draft of this thing months before the accident in 1999, in the spring of 1999. You guys, I was blown away by this. I was absolutely blown away. I did not do any research on the book before I started reading it. I always save that for after. So by the time I reached the end, reflecting on all of this really strong, intriguing narrative content, assuming, oh wow, that was a really poignant reflection on almost dying. And then I realized that it was before before that happened oh my god oh my god you guys oh my goodness gracious blown away oh my gosh because the con you guys the content inside specifically some of the fates of certain characters it is so eerily similar and the philosophical grief exploration in this story i just assumed it was coming from king and recovery it was just so powerful and it wasn't it wasn't and holy crap you guys i can't even because depending on how you look at it i mean i know this is gonna sound tremendously witchy woo but one could say perhaps king might have manifested such a fate for himself i don't know i don't know i don't know we won't go too far down that rabbit hole pure speculation pure cosmic wildness but it's compelling to think about guys it is really fascinating that such a tale that is so introspective on the subject of everything we can't control in our meager human lives and those areas of life that provide endless questions as well as the deep chasm of the unknown and then while you're at it let's add some heaping grief and the perplexing notion of who gets to live and who dies and oh my gosh guys (sighs) my hands over my face this is a face just like a a a face cradle moment because this this one be deep it is deep and he wrote it before the accident the one that nearly took king away from all of us thanks heavens he was spared but technically speaking 
from a Buick 8, minus a few hidden outliers he might have had at that time, from a Buick 8 may have been his last book, guys. And what a thought. What a thought after you finish from a Buick 8 if that was the last thing he ever wrote. Oh my gosh. So when you have that in your mind, oh, when you when you finish the text, it, oh gosh. Let's just say my brain was scrambled egg for sure, dear friends. Scrambled egg. So let's get into a little bit of backstory on the novel and then we'll dig into the blueprints of this episode and get the show on the road. So King said in the author's note at the back, in early 1999, he was driving back up to Maine from Florida and actually made it to Pennsylvania, filling up his gas tank at a rural little station. And he went exploring around, walking around. There was a little healthy stream or a creek nearby lots of rushing water with winter runoff and while he was kind of taking a gander and stretching having a moment he slipped and slid down the little embankment there he slid down a good ways he almost went into the water and he thought to himself you know I he could have gone in and that would have been it would he have ever been found who would have, you know, what would have happened to the his car, and he had a lot of storage he was carrying back to Maine with him. How long would all of that stayed at the station before it was reported to police? What would have happened to it? And so it's a really engaging place to start, but then what King does with it is so much richer and deeper and definitely spins straw into gold. I really like it, guys. So let's whip out a summary and get these uh, wheels on the track here. This is a little breakdown about the 2002 release that has a little over 350 pages in the American hardcover. In Statler, Pennsylvania, in the year 2002, young Ned Wilcox is grieving the death of his father, seasoned police officer Kurt Wilcox, by hanging close to his buddies that make up the police family of Troop D. Sergeant Sandy Dearborn, as well as several other officers, draw near to Ned to tell him about his father, but also deal him into a secret Troop D has kept since 1979. Troop D has been in possession of a pristine blue 1954 Buick Roadmaster that is much more than a conventional car. The Roadmaster is immaculate and looks as though it's never been driven on public roads. It lowers the temperature around it and while neatly shut behind Shed B, the Roadmaster begins to reveal terrifying elements from another world. For 23 years, Troop D has studied, experimented, hypothesized, fallen victim to, as well as nearly driven mad over the true nature of the Buick Roadmaster as an endless source of terror and madness. Okay, my guys, now before we get started, I have a mini homework assignment for anybody, for, for everybody is what I meant to say. Homework for everyone. Before you progress with this episode, what I'm asking everybody to do, make sure you pull up a new tab on whatever internet browser you choose and type in 1954 Blue Buick Roadmaster. You guys, take a look at this sexy thing. You gotta do it. It's a must. You have to. 
I'm pretty novice in the world of Buicks. I don't know them very well. Other cars I do, but you guys, I never thought Buicks could look this cool. I had no idea, and this thing is really cool. It is super badass, and I think it might give our homegirl Christine our, is it 1958 or 57? 19, we're gonna go with, we're gonna go with my gut. My gut says 1958 Plymouth Fury, right? I think that's Christine. Forgive me, constant readers, if I butchered that one, but I think the Buick Roadmaster might give her a run for her money. Granted, now that I think about it, red is my favorite color, so I think Christine would win in the end, but... I want you guys to look at a picture of the car because having a physical image in your mind, guys, it's so helpful and essential. You need to burn this thing into your brain. And when you do, it comes to life in such a strong way. And if you have the American hardcover, the dust jacket has a pretty cool animated uh, picture of the grill, the, the front grill of the car also incredibly helpful but make sure you get this thing in your mind's eye take a look at it study it get an interior picture while you're at it and then after you do that after you take a look at the car make sure you pull up the 1965 bob dylan song from a buick six give that a listen it's a really happy little jam and then you're gonna be in business you're gonna be ready to dive in with me <laughs> to from a buick eight to from that's a terrible sentence but what are you gonna do but the picture and the song are key ingredients, both of them, to this compelling and mysterious king work that I know, I know it's polarized a lot. I know it's angered a few people. A couple people have gotten completely lost, specifically my buddy Simon B from King, from King Size. He was like, I had no idea what the hell was going on. And I understood. Uh, but this one, guys, I feel for the most part, it's been largely unexplored and ignored. And we we need to put a stop to that one. We need to spend some time on this little gem. And so if you want to read the book before or after, um, by all means, but get the song, get the car image in your mind. Let's do it. So I'm going to give everybody the blueprints of the episode, kind of let you know what you're signing up for in regards to the rest of the programming. So what's coming up next? First, we're always going to start with the positive as we do in any creative writing scenario. We always examine what's working and that's coming up in our next section. We're going to take a look at what makes this novel strong, what was original, intriguing, cool, all the positive associations with this reading experience. That's where we're going to start. Next, we're going to head into the character section right after that. Usually that section, I title it Heroes, Villains, and Honorable Mentions, but because this novel is such a unique sort of stew pot this uh this gumbo this jambalaya if you will of king ideas we have a lot of blurred lines a lot of gray area the heroes and the villains it i don't know if it works so it's gonna be called our character section we've got a decently sized ensemble cast in this story not as large as other king works where you've got an entire town like salem's lot under the dome i haven't read needful things yet but that's coming up this year and i've heard 
Needful Things is another huge King King novel with, uh, gosh, 30 plus King characters. Um, but this one, we've got a good chunk. We've got a decent sized cast. That's going to be our character section, and we're going to put them in the spotlight. And lastly, we will examine the criticisms in the what's not working section. So this section typically features questions I had about the story, and maybe, just maybe, we might have a segment I pull up every now and again called The Wishing Well. Um, the Wishing Well is my little thought quandary area where I imagine myself in editor of the work. I pretend I am an additional creative hand and we explore what I would have liked to have happen if I could have changed the creative work in some way. If I have the power to wave a magic wand and insert whatever I want in terms of plot outcome or character anything, I get to make the changes. It's my magical idea zone of what if, what if. I might have one or two little little wishing well moments where I'll just toss a stone in the little pond and let you guys know what I would have changed if I had the power to do so and then we'll wrap up everything with final thoughts and hopefully give this massive underrated king title a little bit more of the literary spotlight it deserves that is my goal for this episode everybody I want to really shine some light on this very cool book so once more before we begin before we dig in tread carefully I always do my best to avoid direct spoilers I don't have a designated section in the episode for pre-spoiler post-spoiler like a lot of shows do where they'll say this is the I know that Matt Hurt from Tower Junkies he does a brilliant job of this but I don't uh everything's lumped in with the pasta and the sauce if you know what I mean so everything's just out in the open so heads up tread carefully especially if you haven't finished the book but let us finally proceed forward my sweet people thank you so much for hanging out with me thus far let us now head into our next section where we will explore the strengths within 2002's from a buick 8 chicos and chickadees this is the what's working section also known as the strengths area and right now we're going to celebrate what i feel is working extremely well inside 2002's from a buick 8 so for this section i have two categories i want to share with you guys so the first one is narrative structure all right so i am super pleased with what king did here inside this narrative. When it comes to telling a story that is part nostalgia, part police investigation, he made some really smart choices with the passing of time and the creation of a community for the reader. 
So with From a Buick 8, we have alternating chapters, not only from different officers within Troop D, but also alternating timelines. So changing narrators and changing timelines, and it really works. He keeps it very well balanced. So the story begins in 2002, and then in the next chapter, it will say either then or now, and the name of the new narrator. So we start the story jumping back pretty quickly to the year 1979 when the Buick arrived, and then we hop around the mid-1980s and 90s, we're bouncing around the narrative until it circles back to where it began in 2002. So we'll talk about which characters got the most amount of page time in the next section, but I really liked that we have two kinds of alternating literary elements in the story. We have a consistently changing point of view, uh, which creates wonderful narrative voices on the page, which is a huge strength of Kings, as we all know. And then we also have the passing of time. So we get that really reflective nature coming through those narrators. But also, in addition to that, we've got the facts of the case that's being built around this mysterious car. So meanwhile, as Troop D officers are uncovering and trying to break down what they know about the car, the same thing is happening for the reader. So the story begins with Troop D taking care of one of their own teenage sons who is struggling to make sense of a world without his dad. It is a really heartfelt part of the novel and I love that it starts right away. It's just such a sweet sentiment right away and the young boy is trying to learn as much as he can about being a Troop D police officer because he feels close to his father that way and therefore right away our story begins with a lot of tenderness, a lot of heart and emotion and then we get this kind of sly and subtle insertion of mystery as this fancy spotless classic car is abandoned at a rural Pennsylvania gas station. So the narrative structure, guys, it was super smart, and I think it's a huge strength of the novel. I know a lot of people, sadly, more than I wish, (laughs) uh, don't like from a Buick 8. They dislike it quite a bit. I understand why, plot-wise, we don't really have a lot of hooks and a lot of affirming resolutions. I'm going to talk a lot about this in our last section, Um, and overall... I understand. I hear their cries. I understand their complaints. But for me, this story is much more about the journey rather than the destination. Once more, we will get there and chat about this more in depth in our last section. But for those giving the novel a second chance or a first chance, I think it's always wise to examine how the house is built. Let's see how King approached telling this story and constructing the blueprints. Because for a story that is relatively lower on the uh, enjoyment level, I, I think this one isn't as celebrated as highly. I think there's a lot more 
uh, negativity associated with this one, not because it's a bad book, but because it's not the typical book as we kind of touched on in our previous section. This one's Advanced King. Remember guys, this is, this is going to take a little bit more effort, a little bit more elbow grease to get into. So for that reason, it's not as easily accessible. We have a lot of people out there that didn't like this one, shelved it or read it and just didn't really give it a second thought to meh, it's over, it's done. But uh, I really like this. I like the structure and I think it it allows for great character study and character closeness as we're able to observe our characters at different ages when they're young cops versus seasoned cops. And that's such a huge element about the story, guys. Oh my gosh. Because we start with like these young 20-something blue-collar guys who over the years see some stuff like these gentlemen see some things and over time like water wearing away their rock and we love when king does this he's such a master at this but he does once more a beautiful job of showing that erosion through character voice with these changing chapters as well as increasing the curiosity of the reader by showing how the car gets more mysterious as the years go by. So overall, to distill all of that, novel structure is a winner for me here, guys. I am such a fan of the alternating chapters and alternating timelines. So that's going to lead me into my second point, my second category for what is working really well inside from a Buickgate, what is incredibly strong. My number two category is called Welcome to Science Class. So this one's going to be extra fun. Two things before we get started on this topic. Really quick, one, one of them is a very quick little tangent. So number one, your host, Kim C., once upon a time when I was a very confused senior in high school and I had no idea what I wanted to major in, I was just clueless and I (laughs) I was nervous that you had to pick the major you were going to be forever, forever before you got to university. I was just a, a worried little child in general. I was struggling. I was looking at programs and trying to figure out something that would make a decent living. Um, And so I chose dental hygiene because I thought it might be fun and I thought it would be a good day job I could have and then I could go home and write and be creative and make art and and at that time I didn't even think of majoring in creative writing. I was too shy. I didn't think I was good enough, you know, all, all the stuff. So anyway, because I chose dental hygiene as my major that freshman year of fall 2000 something something, uh, I was thrust into chemistry class, biology, microbiology, uh, really intense scientific coursework. And um, I did okay. Uh, Not as well as I needed to do, but I I hung on for, for a good semester, I think, before the next semester where I sunk like a stone in one of the math classes. But What was great about that first semester is I did have some time to put some gloves on and mask up, got some goggles, and everything that was science-y and lab-saturated, I got to participate in, specifically volunteering in the dental hygiene lab. I got to use a little water sprayer rinse gun and... I got to floss some guy's teeth. I got to just get in there with a little scraper. 
It was really cool. It wasn't gross at all. Even when I was looking at someone's gums that someone, this guy had like used dip for 30 years and it was, his gum tissue was mangled and yellow and he had just calculus, also known as plaque, all over the place. Really gnarly looking, but with PPE, everything is just manageable and interesting. I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's true, guys. Like, gums that are gushing blood, you know, just plaque everywhere, exposed nerves, missing teeth. It was cool. (laughs) And for somebody who doesn't like horror, uh, I'm telling you, once you have the appropriate gear, it's, it's all of a sudden not gross. It's science. So long story short, I didn't have the grades to move forward because you needed straight A's to be a dental hygienist. Um, I didn't, I was not a straight A student, not in the sciences. No, no, no. I worked really hard. I went to all the tutoring sessions, but I was a BC student, so I got kicked out. (laughs) But after I got kicked out, I found my way to the eagle wings of the English department, found my way back to my first love, but my time in the dental hygiene program reminded me how science is just foundational for everything, guys. I use it all the time with literary analysis, and I think 1000%, it was such a joy to read from a Buick Cape because King takes us to science class with this story, friends. He 100% enrolls all of us in a course called 1954 Buick Roadmaster 101. That is our class. And for the duration of the novel, we're in the lab with Steve. So point number two, before we head in to the official category, I want to remind everyone the steps of the scientific method. I know it's probably been a minute for everybody unless you are actually in the scientific field for your uh, salary job, but uh, I'm bringing this up only because you see these steps in this novel over and over and over again. So the steps that I chose are is um, the five-step one. They've, there's a couple, six or seven steps out there depending on where in the world you are and how you are verbalizing them. But the scientific method is as follows. Number one, ask a question. The first step if of the scientific method is to ask a question that you want to answer. Number two, perform research. Number three, establish your hypothesis. Number four, test your hypothesis by conducting an experiment. Number five, make an observation. Oh, I actually did do seven steps. Apologies, seven steps. Number six, analyze the results and draw a conclusion. And number seven, present the findings. One more time. Number one, ask a question. Number two, perform research. Number three, establish your hypothesis. Number four, test your hypothesis through an experiment. Number five, make an observation. Number six, analyze the results and draw a conclusion. Number seven, present the findings. So now that we're on the same page class, this leads me to my second point of what is working so, so well inside from a Buick 8, and that's King 
bringing us in to science class, guys. So whether he intended to or not, King takes us all inside the science lab, very similar to ninth grade biology or at whatever level in school you were introduced to the scientific method. So the majority of narrative content, or rather the facts of the case, because inside this story is a 23-year period full of experiments that Troop D has conducted on the Buick. And the bulk of the narrative surrounds the discoveries they've made by observing it over those 23 years. Granted, some of these discoveries are quite terrifying. (laughs) And if you've read The Mist or listened to my episode on The Mist, where I talk about the creature feature nature of the novella, it's kind of similar. Uh, So I don't, we'll get a little bit into it. But uh, yeah, we got some creature feature stuff. We've got some similarities from the Mist novella over here in From Buick 8. And so without revealing all the literal gory details, I do want to talk about what King gives us because it's total science class, guys. Straight up, all the way, we are in science lab with him. So here we go. Here's what I think about King's science class. So firstly, the reader learns very soon that the Buick is not a car. Um, it is, yeah, it looks like a car, but there's no way it can drive. Like, it's got an engine inside, but it's all wrong. Uh, and so what they kind of learn over a period of time, like within the first few years, is that the Buick actually might be a doorway of some kind, a kind of portal. And we have five entrances from otherworldly phenomena that occur in the trunk of the Buick. Nowhere else. So Troop D actually uses the phrase repeatedly of giving birth. That is the phrase. So they see the Buick as a kind of birthing conduit from another world. And it's it's wild, guys. So for example, one of the first creatures that appears out of the Buick's trunk is a winged one. It is a winged creation that is described by King as kind of a large gooey bat. Uh, it is not a bat, of course, but Troop D just doesn't know what else to hold it in reference to, so it's mostly bat-like. So the first arrival, one can assume, wherever this alternate reality is from, has brought forth an entity from the air, a flyer, an air dweller, some kind of bird-like, bat-like, winged, pterodactyly creature that flies. So Troop D performs a formal scientific dissection of the bat thing, and this sort of, this is the kicker, guys. The bat is the first sort of creature thing, and it freaks everybody out so much, but rather than just like get scared and bury it in the field somewhere, they go the opposite direction and create a kind of really formal laboratory clinical space for this experiment. They 
They, they get all the materials, they get a huge file cabinet, and suddenly Troop D, this rural headquarters outpost, is full of photos and measurements and video and charts, and the Troop D cops become detectives to the unknown, definitely, but they are scientists, and I don't know if they really signed up for that, but it is what happens to them, which is fascinating. So one of the next entities that comes forward after the bat um, are of the plant variety, and I have plant in quotes, of course. We have one occurrence of these little lychee leaves that they, they're black, and then when you touch them, they kind of turn white and ashy. They die off right away, but they leave behind a kind of whitish slime. And so we actually have a few instances of plant life. We've got some of the leaves that die off. They kind of look like bugs. And then we have some flower-like formations that appear later on in the 23-year stint. So we have some land, right? We've got some plant life entities. So the first one was air, and now we have land. So the next significant living creature to come forth is a fish entity. So the, the we've got um, water now. So thus far, over the first decade or so of the Buick under consistent observation in the closed shed B, they've had air, land, and now sea, right? Now ocean or water. And presumably, and in the final chapters of the book, we get the most climactic reveal in the late 90s with a huge creature, guys. This one is like the, ooh, it's the biggest one. It's terrifying, and it's kind of a combination of all three, air, land, sea. But what's more horrifying is it's definitely humanoid of some kind. There are human features attached to it, which makes it very frightening. We've got claws, we have lungs, we have facial features. And if I remember the description correctly, we kind of have this creepy chest tentacle thing that's just wild and it's very imaginative. So once more, if you're a fan of some of the creatures from the novella The Mist, which is the very first uh, short story that kicks off, well, it's the first part of Skeleton Crew, the first novella that kicks off that collection, check it out um, because this is definitely uh, giving me similar vibrations. But it's intriguing to really zone in on how King describes these creatures from another world. And what's interesting is that they start to die very quickly after they arrive for the most part. So it makes me curious how they may look on the other side in their world, wherever that place is, whatever that place is. And I I wonder, because this book makes you just so curious you can't even see straight. Um, I'm wondering if these otherworldly creatures look kind of relatively normal on their end, and then they go through some sort of portal through the trunk of the Buick and just get super mangled, or then they breathe in RO2, which is similar to the uh, great sci-fi novel War of the Worlds, where the alien creatures can't survive in our atmosphere. Sorry for that spoiler. 
but uh, I'm just wondering if they get really mangled um, when they transfer over to, to our world. Who's to say? But over the course of the novel, we have huge, we have four huge creature births that come out of the trunk of the Buick with the addition of some plant bug-like stuff in between. So five sort of birthy moments from the trunk. No other place but the trunk. So air, land, sea is represented in some way from this other universe, which is, I mean, yeah, that's, you're, you're in the midst of discovering the unknown, the, the final frontier, and it's not space, it's something, it's something worse. So what all of the creatures that come forth have in common is smell. So what's another huge aspect to the science-y slash horror aspect of this story is everything that comes through the Buick's trunk carries the odor of salty cabbage, uh, boiled cabbage specifically. It's a very cruciferous vegetable odor that's very sulfur-like. This is a very strong scent, guys, and it is not a pleasant scent. Um, or rather, I should say, it's a strong smell and not a pleasant scent. There's also the presence of goo, which um, definitely amplifies the creep factor. We have the addition of lots of viscous slime, and it's usually white, which, ew, there's connotations with that. We're not going to go too deep into that. Ew, ew, ew. But it reeks, and it causes a lot of the Troop D folks to just vomit and hit the wall of unstoppable gross out. And this is where we really see uh, some of the Troop T cops invest in almost hazmat gear when it comes to some of their dissections and encounters with the trunk creatures. These things are smelly and messy and incredibly alien. And what's interesting in the narrative is you've got the Troop D cops that are scared to death. They are scared to death at what they are looking at, what this thing is conjuring in their in their thought process right they have no grounds in reality and there's no logic to them being there they're just absolutely fraying um their sanity is starting to unravel a little bit and the troop d cops that start to feel that start to edge away from the buick they start to kind of back up and disassociate themselves from the Buick, whereas there are other characters, and we'll talk about this in the next section in greater detail, that do the opposite and draw nearer to the Buick. So lots of fascinating stuff in regards to who, uh, to what happens based on the grossness. <laughs> the grossness and the alien nature um, separates men from boys. Yes, it does. So in addition to what emerges from the trunk, the Buick also engages in what Troop D calls a light show or a light quake, where all of a sudden the Buick will emit this blinding purple light and the car will shake and this light just shoots out very strobe-like. Um, it's definitely not like a solid beam of light. It is manic and crazy and no one can stop it and it definitely reminds me of the very green light we have mentioned quite a few times in the Tommyknockers novel where those little little Altair 4 dudes are present uh, 
green light is a big thing in that novel but with Buick it's a very vivid purple so shortly following the light quakes is typically when a creature will come forth from the trunk so it's all sort of patterned together a little bit so with all of this data I just mentioned, right, we've got the five sort of trunk births of air, land, and sea. We have the incredibly stinky, smelly, slimy, and then we have this random light quakes. I just think about how much of Troop D Pennsylvania cops were forced to become scientists. As detectives, they're sort of always observing and collecting data, but now it gets bumped up a notch. And they they just start filming and hypothesizing. And yeah, they treat it like a police investigation for sure, but it becomes more science than anything else. Well, a few of the guys perform a legitimate animal autopsy on the bat. I'm assuming that they did the same with the fish creature, but I just love how King allowed these characters to be transformed by their wonder. They were already in a profession to hunt down the unexplainable, to find answers and solutions to crimes, and especially clean up messes. But in this story, all of them, even the ones that kind of draw away, or turn away, I should say, from the Buick, they all become scientists whether they wanted to or not. And over a 20-year period, their curiosity and the new developments are forever at the forefront. And for me, guys, this novel, what's so strong is it takes the scientific method and really gives it something substantial to work with. And for the reader, you get to work with that scientific method in your mind as well. And I greatly respect it for that. I super like it. So that was a lot, guys. That was a big chunk of school. So now that we've covered my two points, the first one being narrative structure and the second being welcome to science class, let's now take a look at our character section and which members of Troop D really transformed from the addition of the Buick to their lives, which ones stayed the same, or which ones ran away altogether. I'll meet you in the next section. folks welcome to the character section so in terms of this ensemble cast it's most definitely smaller than some of the full town king novels we usually get about once a decade but regarding this cast it's pretty sizable the novel states that troop d is a bit of a rural pennsylvania outpost where they encounter a large population of Amish in their day-to-day, a lot of open space, and across three shifts covering 24 hours, they have about, according to the text, 18 to 22 regular officers over a 23-year span. So below are a few of the characters I wanted to mention who really drive the narrative. We definitely have a few more featured in the story, but there are eight I would like to bring to the forefront and 
one kind of sort of villain, more on that later. But I first want to mention the character of Sandy Dearborn, not to be confused with Alan Pangborn, which threw me off for a quick second when I was initially reading the novel because I know he is a character that's been in more than one of King's works pretty sure. However, those works I haven't read yet. Can't, uh, so can't confirm exactly how many Alan Pangborn has been featured in. Sandy Dearborn is not Alan Pangborn. Okay. So Sandy is a kind soul who definitely fell into the job closer than others, um, mostly because he, according to my notes, I feel, unless I got it wrong, he stayed single, didn't marry, and eventually becomes the sergeant of Troop D after their former sergeant, Tony Shangdinks, retires, and then he also is sort of put into a elderly home and is suffering from dementia, so poor, poor Tony, but Sandy is featured prominently throughout the story because he was very good friends with Kurt Wilcox, who is the one I'm going to talk about next. But Sandy is definitely sort of our emotional anchor to the story. He has a lot of poetic loveliness about him, as well as the job, as well as the way he views Ned Wilcox. More on him in a little bit. But If Sandy is sort of our emotional anchor, the one who's on the big screen in everyone's mind is Kurt Wilcox. This is the character in the story who's featured quite a bit as he is the main Troop D officer who was really transformed by the Buick. So the story begins with Kurt as a rookie cop in 1979, and he and fellow officer Ennis Rafferty are called to the rural gas station because there was a classic car that was seemingly abandoned by a mysterious figure wearing a black hat and coat. This mysterious figure, of course, disappears. He's never seen again. He's never found. But Kurt was there on the scene that day it happened and since he first encounters the mystery car and i believe kurt sits inside the car on the first day kurt wilcox is the one who really can't stop pondering observing experimenting and kurt's the one who really goes full scientist he gets a lot of the gear to collect data with he gets his hands on film cameras gloves materials from the university laboratories this guy gets into it and to such a degree that he's warned by many of the troop d officers that he's putting perhaps too much of his life into uncovering what the buick is he starts to sacrifice some of his life in terms of his free time but kurt makes himself the point of contact with anything to do with the car he is constantly observing every inch of the thing and always wondering pondering seeking answers conducting tests more experiments more data collection 
his fascination never ends and it eats up his time and he's often away from his family because he is so transfixed by the buick and troop d usually has to force him to go home guys like this guy is just his mind has been captured to such a degree he just can't let it go and of course curtis wilcox is not alive at the beginning of the story i'm not going to reveal why or how but that's just something you need to know only because the whole thing comes full circle in a solid way more on that later but his him not being alive really colors our entire narrative because Kurt was the most obsessed out of all of the Troop D officers. He struggled the most with letting go of the mystery and letting go of what the car was, could be. And Curtis is really the character at the center of this mystery for sure. He is the one the reader follows along the most as we're uncovering the story. Curtis is I've, I've heard from a couple constant readers that they just really couldn't discern which officer from the other because we'll, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But Curtis is kind of the the one on the big screen for sure. He's the easily identifiable one because he just can't let it go. So now that we've talked about Curtis Wilcox, we have to talk about Ned Wilcox. Ned is Curtis's teenage son who we meet right away when the story begins. I believe Ned is about 17 at the start of the novel and bless this poor precious soul, he's having a really hard time. I believe his father has been gone approximately a year. And by the end of the story, I believe Ned is approximately 22 years old and the beginning kind of sets it up pretty strongly that he will follow in his father's footsteps and it feels really right. It's definitely a good thing. However, I am happy to kind of report that the pull that the Buick had on Ned's father, Curtis, it doesn't seem to be as strongly uh, attached to Ned. This is a mysterious case. It could be, I think King alludes to, and we'll talk about this in greater deal in our next section, but I think King alludes to the fact that the passing of time is weakening sort of the abilities of the Buick. <laughs> Once more, lots to discuss on what the, the powers of the Buick are exactly. Um, but aside from being a monster portal, as we discussed in our previous section, the Buick definitely has its hooks in it in a couple folk. But one of the most beautiful parts of this story, guys, if you are considering giving from a Buick Aid a chance, I ask that you cling to this really lovely section of the narrative, and that is Ned's story. Ned is so heartbroken over the loss of his father, the unexpected, terrible, tragic loss of Curtis, that he just wants to hang out at Troop D all the time, and he's learning to become a dispatcher, and he's, you know, he's just, he feels centered when he's at the Troop D headquarters. And what's so precious is all of these officers are kind of encircling him. And I just, I don't know, there's something so precious about that, guys. I don't know if it's just a very timely thing, um, thinking about loss and the amount of loss that the entire world has suffered in these 
few years and examining those irreplaceable absences that we now have and how community, we we take care of each other and we kind of just circle around each other as best we can. At least we should. At least I hope that's how it goes down for the most part. Um, But I, I really was so attracted to that warmth within the narrative of Troop D kind of, um, quite literally actually encircling young Ned to to tell him about his father and we actually have a lovely sample of the text we're gonna read here pretty soon more in that in just a few minutes but I love Ned the character of Ned is such a sweet little lamb and he really makes the emotional heart of the story come to the forefront for sure so I do want to mention our third fourth character Ennis Rafferty so I I wanted to bring this character to your attention guys mostly because he's very interesting if Curtis is the kind of guy on the big screen Ennis is the one at the very back of your mind mostly because Ennis disappears from the story very early on I believe it's four months after the Buick is discovered Ennis disappears and it's it's odd shortly after the cops acquire the roadmaster they decide to store it on site at the troop d headquarters and they have an open shed that is referred to as shed b and only a few months after in the heat of all of their experimentation and investigation of the Buick. They have forensic people on it, like everybody's super curious about what this car is. Uh, Ennis disappears off the face of the earth, guys, and he never comes back. And over the years, Troop D officers wholeheartedly believe that the Buick ate, in quotes, uh, ate him. As some that the car a hundred percent is culpable for the disappearance of Ennis. He somehow, perhaps, we don't know for sure, but the theory is that Ennis got swallowed up in the trunk and he's just never seen again. And his disappearance is kind of this secret, this terrible, really it's a huge burden that Troop D has to keep. Um, Ennis is survived by one sister who's told to be rather raucous in her investigation of her brother's disappearance. She thinks it has something to do with Troop D. She's um, causing quite a bit of a stink by trying to alert the media of conspiracy, but what Troop D lovingly does is they financially support her. They kind of take care of Ennis's sister and meanwhile, collectively amongst everybody, just know that the Buick had something to do with his disappearance. And so I really love the fact that we have these characters that create a very sort of a a cornerstone kind of chess piece in our chess board rather it's like the chess board in the mind and so over here you've got Curtis and over here in the very back you're positioning Ennis and so these different troop D officers in connection with the Buick are like the pawns on the board and they're not necessarily moving around in a a game-winning way but they're there and the Buick is kind of moving them around. It's it's interesting. But to visualize it, we've got this chessboard and Ennis is he's on the board, but you just don't think about him that often unless 
it's a very sort of reflective moment. I did want to mention our next character, Shirley Pasternak. She's a Troop D dispatcher who comes along a little bit later in the story and late in the sort of Buick tale. Uh, Shirley shows up in the late 80s, early 90s, and she is our only female character, guys. I definitely wanted to give her some spotlight. We have one singular chapter where Shirley has her own narration, and we really don't hear directly from her other than that one chapter and a couple sort of dialogue moments where she's interacting with the other officers, but she definitely makes a huge impact because poor Shirley is present at one of the most climactic points of the reflection. It's uh, what Shirley experiences, guys, is one that would alter anyone forever. And because of that, Shirley kind of gets, for me, an honorary trauma badge for what she endures. However, even though she's definitely in the background, she's definitely toward the back and bottom of of the the game board, and the fact that she is a dispatcher, she's so important. She's pivotal, she's paramount, and I would consider Shirley kind of the nucleus of Troop D because she's the the voice. She's the communication for all the officers. Shirley is single, unmarried. She's got two cats at home, maybe early 40s. She kind of just surrendered like Sandy, like a lot of officers that we kind of hear about here and there. She kind of gave her life to the job and she's beloved by Troop D. And knowing that Shirley is our only female character when you read the story, it's interesting to observe how Troop D treats her a little bit better than one of the guys. Like, she's definitely observed as a special. Um, they, they definitely razz her a little bit, but she's held in high esteem and respected quite a bit, and it's very sweet. I really like Shirley and the, pre- and the fact that we have one sole female character, and King, of course, makes them go through hell. She has one of the most traumatic moments out of everybody in the story. So Shirley's is really interesting. I wanted to bring up Archie Arcanian. He's a little bit of comic relief. For those of you who have observed King's writing extensively, you know every now and again in an ensemble cast, we kind of get like a lovable outcast or a a, a sweet sort of old, uh, not necessarily foolish, but definitely a comedic presence. Arky has a very thick Swedish accent, so his expressions and colloquialisms are pretty charming. King does a wonderful job playing with that. The narrative voice is super strong. And Arky is not a police officer, and I am unsure as to what his exact job title is, but I've through the text observed, I think it's kind of janitorial services, I believe, or some kind of handy maintenance man who has been at the Troop D outpost for years and years and years and years and years. And he's a definite sweet spirit. He's featured quite a bit in just sort of these unlucky moments where he's in Shed B trying to be helpful and useful when shenanigans occur. So Arky Arcanian is our 
comic relief. Uh, of course, me being the huge animal lover that I am, gotta mention the animals. We have one precious one inside from a Buick 8, and that's Mr. Dylan, the dog. He is a police dog. I love him. I don't recall what breed he is. I don't have anything in my notes as to what breed. I, I should not assume it's a German Shepherd. I don't know, or a Bloodhound. I don't know the breed. I don't know the breed of Mr. Dylan, but he is wonderful and helpful. And of course, however, beware if you're an animal lover like myself, it's very difficult to encounter animals in King's work. It's just the hardest thing sometimes, and it definitely is in this story. So heads up to anybody who needs to prepare themselves for any sort of harm, animal harm. It sucks, guys prepare yourself. Mr. Dylan is wonderful. He did really well for a really long time. He did his ultimate best for Troop D. We love him. That's all I want to say before I get too emotional, but Mr. Dylan the dog. So sweet. All right, so I think that's everybody I in terms of human stuff. I have one more we'll talk about at the very end, but for right now, I did want to share a bit of the text with you guys. This is a really lovely segment where you get to hear the reflective narration from Sandy Dearborn, and we get to kind of hear what's going on with Troop D as they're trying to love and and take care of Kurt's boy, Ned. And so I think in this sample, we get a really strong glimpse on the tone, the emotional weight, the narrative voice, and just a lot of strength from King's writing in this section. This is on page 143 in the American hardcover. I still had my hand on Eddie's wrist and I had to fight a desire to squeeze it again, hard. I liked Eddie, always had, and he could be brave, but he also had a yellow streak. I don't know how those two can exist side by side in the same man, but they can. I've seen it more than once. Eddie froze back in 96 on the day Travis and Tracy O'Day started firing their fancy militia machine guns out of their farm farmhouse windows. Kurt had to break cover and yank him to safety by the back of his jacket. And now here he was, trying to squiggle out of his part in the other story, the one in which Ned's father had played such a key role. Not because he'd done anything wrong, he hadn't, but because the memories were painful and frightening. Sandy, I really ought to get toddling. I've got a lot of chores I've been putting off, and we've been telling this boy about his father, I said. And what I think you ought to do, Eddie, is sit there quiet, maybe have a sandwich and a glass of iced tea and wait until you have something to say. He settled back on the end of the bench and looked at us. I know what he saw in the eyes of Kurt's boy, puzzlement and curiosity. We'd become quite a little council of elders, though, surrounding the young fellow, singing him our warrior songs of the past. And what about when the songs were done? If Ned had been a young Indian brave, he might have been sent out on some sort of dream quest. Kill the right animal, have the right vision while the blood of the animal's heart was still smeared around his mouth, come back a man. If there could be some sort of test at the end of this, I reflected, some way in which Ned can demonstrate new maturity and understanding, things might have been a lot simpler. But that's not the way things work nowadays, at least not by and large. These days, it's a lot more about how you feel than what you do, and I think that's what's wrong. And what did Eddie see in our eyes? Resentment? A touch of contempt? 
perhaps even the wish that it had been him who had flagged down the truck with the flapper rather than Curtis Wilcox, that it had been him who had gotten turned inside out by Bradley Roach. Always almost overweight Eddie Jackaboy, who drank too much and would probably be making a little trip to Scranton for a two-week stay in the member assistance program if he didn't get a handle on his drinking soon. The guy who was always slow filing his reports and who almost never got the punchline of a joke unless it was explained to him. I hope he didn't see any of those things because there was another side to him, a better side, but I can't say for sure he didn't see at least some of them, maybe even all of them. Oh, guys, it's just so rich and good. Oh, man. So I love that scene because we get um, some good reflection on the character of Eddie Jackaboy, who I'm going to save for you guys to read in the story in terms of what that guy's all about. I really like Sandy's reflective nature. He's not super duper reminiscent even though I love that in King's character work but he's just the perfect amount he's guarded he's manly he's secretive but it comes out in tiny little micro doses so I really enjoy the character work in From a Buick 8 so to kind of round out our character section I think King might want us to associate the Buick as a villain. More on that in the next section. However, dear friends, I don't think it works. I can't consider the Buick a villain. I wanted to. I was going to say, that's why I saved it for the last. The Buick is our villain. I don't know if he is though, guys. I can't be properly sure that we can accurately categorize the Buick as a villain, which is a perfect segue into our last section of what's not working so well in the 2002 story from a Buick 8. So let's go ahead and put the car in drive and head on over there. Ladies and gentlemen, we've reached our section of From a Buick 8, where I would like to go over a few of the small peccadillos I have with the text. A few areas I feel could have been a tad bit stronger, as well as questions, final thoughts, and our wrap-up. So this is the what's not working section. And when it comes to really observing what's put forth in this very contemplative story that is an endless chasm of mystery, there is only one category I have, and it's called, This Villain is Underbaked. <laughs> As in raw dough, if you would have in mind the concept of raw dough. All right, imagine with me, my friends. King has left the chemistry class to make more chemistry in the kitchen and bake some bread. So he gathers all the ingredients, mixes them, lets everything rise a little bit, puts it in the oven. But when this story ends, when he pulls the loaf out of the oven, it's not entirely cooked through. And that is, I feel, what we have 
concerning from a Buick 8, specifically regarding some of the looming or hinted at notions surrounding the Buick and the Buick being a source of evil. Okay, so we've talked about in other episodes, specifically the Tommyknockers in great detail, that Steve usually isn't really keen on world building or giving strength and weight to his own lore. I felt the 2021 release of Later did an excellent job of balancing that out. However, uh, it's typically not normal. Usually we get a fantastic chunk of physical description and sensory detail, but anything larger than that, such as motivations and who exactly is the puppeteer on the other side of a mysterious creature-like entity, all that is left blank in the world of King. Granted, I haven't read everything yet, so that's a little bit of a broad statement, but in what I've observed thus far, I've noticed this is a little weak spot in King's creative when stringing together his, what he's gonna put together in terms of the arrangement. This is a weak spot. This is, this is a little bit of an Achilles heel I've noticed. So concerning the Buick, we have really sparse details, guys. Like, we're just, we don't have a lot to go on. And that's okay, because mystery is the name of the game here. We do not know what it is, what it could be, who put it there, all the 5W questions that are not essential, but they would be nice, you know, that we don't have any of that. But here is where, for me, a real problem is, and that is... We don't have enough time in the oven for some of these character fates to work. So here's specifically where I have the issue. In the novel, we have three characters destroyed in a matter of speaking by the car. One disappears completely, Ennis Rafferty from our last section. One is killed by a different vehicle, but it's somehow, at least via the text, connected to the Buick. And then at the end, we have a character who kills himself because the hypothesis is that he was influenced by the Buick to end his life behind the wheel. At the very end, we have mention of voices or hypothetical voices in the mind of the last suicide victim. So what King is saying and what we have featured in the text is that the Buick is somehow sinister and evil. It is sentient. It has, for the most part, a kind of kill list. (laughs) At least King is uh, sort of asking the reader to digest that. This car, car in quotes, has the power to influence the world around it and take people out from Troop D. And it seems to maybe have a grudge against Troop D. So my criticism for from a Buick 8 is that what I just mentioned isn't working, guys, because we don't have enough to go on to just assume as readers that the car is evil, that this car constantly has malevolent intent. Granted, I don't know if we mentioned this as thoroughly as we could have at the beginning, uh, and I, I hopefully have mentioned this in other spots before. I've not read Christine, everybody not yet read it. I've heard wonderful things. 
So I don't know if this notion of an evil car is a throwback to our Plymouth friend. It's very plausible due to the fact that Christine was also set in Pennsylvania and we are once more in rural Pennsylvania. Potentially an unrelated coincidence. But I I believe from what I know about Christine that the car, Christine, I believe she's a female entity, had a sort of unrested spirit within her or something evil. And so perhaps in the later writing of From a Buick Gate, he's allowing that notion to come forward because he's done it before. A car like Christine, this Buick, because it's unexplainable, it's all caps evil like Christine and wants to destroy folks. It's not working, guys. It just isn't cooked through. It's, it's just not working. So here's here's where it gets a little challenging for King readers. And I, I've encountered this with a couple lovely people who've written into the show and who have really shared their love of the works with me and King. Here's the challenge. We have to stay close to the text and it's sometimes difficult for folks who are sometimes accidentally, unknowingly, an apologist for King. And what they wanted to say is, here's what he meant, or here's what it means. And it's an assumption, guys. <laughs> so we we can't be an apologist for King. We have to stay close to the text. We can't assume this is what he meant, because that's one of the first things we learn about uh, at the graduate level and the undergraduate level with creative writing. You have to judge the work by the text only. We can't look at the reputation of the author or, I mean, we can we can definitely have that present in our analysis. However, when it comes to really, really looking at how the story is written, the blueprints, how the sausage is made, when we're looking at the specifics, we can't justify or assume. We just have to use what's there. We can't be an apologist. We have to digest the text as it was given to us, and that can be our only frame of reference. And so what I'm highlighting here uh, on that little quick tangent is that we don't have enough buy-in that this Buick, this car, is evil. So what we do know about the car is that it's a portal for monster creatures to come through and that they quickly die off and kind of frighten everybody and leave everyone really shaken up. And that's about it. And it's very sporadic. It only happens once every couple years. And then in between those every couple years, they have a little bit of a light show, a laser light show from the car with bright purple flashing strobe lights. We as the reader know it's not a car. It doesn't drive by human or mechanical means. It's definitely from another world. We can gather that. It's able to repair itself. It has those random light quakes. It drops the temperature around it consistently. These are all the scientific measurements King asked us to take note of as we were reading the text, right? He made us scientists. He made Troop D scientists with these concrete descriptions, these concrete details. Then he wants us to assume that the Buick took out three characters with evil alone. Evil being in quotes, right? But it's not adding up, guys. The monsters coming through doesn't equate evil necessarily, right? Those could be aliens. We don't know if a why does it have to be evil? Why can't it just be otherworldly? 
they kind I don't know if they attacked some of Troop D. I how do we know it was it a I mean I'm getting really, really sort of like in the courtroom about this, but we have to. This is literary analysis, guys. This is close reading. Also, aside from Kurt Wilcox, none of the folks had specific moments of time alone with the Buick to say that they did something to anger the Buick for it to want revenge. We have no evidence of that. Kurt was one of the only Troop D officers who sat inside and most of the officers looked inside, but because they're cops, they're very cautious about touching things and getting too close and physically interacting with something. Kurt was the only one. He didn't do anything wrong. He was just incredibly interested in the Buick, right? So there's, why would the Buick get revenge? Why would it be a killing machine? Why would it want to, so... We just don't have enough evidence to present to the court, ladies and gentlemen, to say the Buick is evil and that the Buick killed these three men. We don't have enough lore and background and substance to to go with the notion of evil. It isn't working. I could be sold on alien. I could be sold on Dark Tower related, absolutely. But we don't have enough money in the bank to write a check for evil, <laughs> everyone. It just isn't there. I cannot say that the 1954 Buick Roadmaster is an evil car. I have a big problem that by the time we get to the end of the novel, that is the direction from the text that King is taking the reader in, in terms of not only is it the unexplainable, but there's a sinister motive behind the car. We don't have enough evidence for it. We just don't, guys. So that is what I, that's the, that's the big, (laughs) the big problem I have with this story. Because of this, I think readers are left struggling a little bit with what to think of this car villain creature thing. This story is set up like a puzzle where there are missing pieces and there is nothing anyone can do about it but try to move on with the notion that there are no answers, there may never be resolution or explanation, it's just something that is. And that's what I think is kind of a strong part to the narrative is it King makes the reader really understand and grasp the cold reality that we are powerless and there are some things in this mysterious life we will not ever know in our earthly brains and bodies, period. We, we're just not going to be able to know it. We're never going to be able to figure it out. We have no control. So with that and with the kind of convoluted half in, half out, the car being evil, King tries to propose at the end, we have a loaf of unbaked dough, folks. It's not cooked all the way through. He pulled it out of the oven and it's just doughy in the middle. Granted, unbaked dough never really stopped me from eating it, although I, you're not supposed to eat underbaked goods, but I do sometimes. It's delicious. And sometimes if you're hungry, I'm sorry, it's going down the hatch. So that never really stopped me in, in eating it and or liking it. So there's that. But my suggestion would be we gotta make a choice here regarding the Buick Roadmaster. 
Because if King wanted to make the car evil, 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 like villain status, we need more content there. I think he shied away from that because he's already done it. Not that repeating yourself is a bad thing, but he, according to what I know about Christine, it seemed like he went evil, evil, evil with Christine in a way that had never been done before. So... With Buick, because King loops in the unknown and really have unknown in all caps in your mind and evil in all caps, one of them isn't landing strong and it's evil. The unknown is working, right? So we can't have two ambiguous concepts at play and have it work. We have some undercooked story concepts with the Buick and I understand that's why I, at least I, I'm pointed in that direction. This is most likely why folks have some problems with From a Buick 8. Because number one, if you're not patient with the heavy philosophy in this story, and number two, you can't make heads or tails of what kind of villain this car is or what exactly, what does this car represent? Buick is one that might keep a few people from digesting the good stuff because they're a little put off by everything that's not there. That's incredibly understandable. And so for that reason, I do grasp why people have problems with From a Buick 8. However, returning back to some of our initial thoughts at the beginning, the proximity of this book to King's real-life accident, and this being a more advanced King novel, as well as the structure, characters, all the science, I'm really hoping that wins some folks over, because this is a really compelling story, friends. There's some magic between these pages for sure. And I, I just really encourage that that is what's at the forefront of people's minds rather than the unbaked, <laughs> the unbaked bread uh, concerning the actual car. So my suggestion to anyone who has struggled with Buick, or let's say you've never gave it a chance because you've heard bad things, or you're totally neutral, I hope it's neutral. I have a little suggestion I'm hoping will help. So we're going to hop over to a small little hard case crime title from 2005 called The Colorado Kid. This thing, my friends, is itty bitty. It's, I believe it's less than 100 pages. I don't have it physically in my hand right now, but I'm looking right at it. It's about four feet away from me. And if I remember correctly, it's a, it's a mystery that takes place on Little Tall Island. We love Little Tall. I haven't read Dolores Claiborne yet, but I have thoroughly loved and consistently praised ad nauseum Storm of the Century, which is, my in my opinion, the best Stephen King miniseries ever. Uh, check out my very extensive and nerdy episode on Storm of the Century if you really want to hear me spiral into crazy town because I loved it so much. However, let's read Colorado Kid, guys. So, Buick was in 2002. In 2005, we have the same concepts at work. It's a much shorter narrative, but this one deals with mystery, clues, physical evidence, good police procedural, but it ends, no spoilers, it ends in a similar way that Buick does. That's all I'll say. And for a lot of readers, it was very off-putting. For myself, 
I loved it. I loved the ending because the strength of the narration was such a wonderful journey that I I was okay with it. So I'm wondering if we check out Colorado Kid and if you guys can be chill with the ambiguous ending that the Colorado Kid has, I think you guys will enjoy From a Buick Gate a little more. If you've given Buick a chance once before and you didn't like it, let's insert Colorado Kid, see how you feel, and then proceed to Buick because we've got some similar concepts at work, and I think they're really cool and very different aspects of King's story plotting that is just it's got great stuff guys it's just great to observe it's different it's advanced and i really really challenge you guys to give it a go and i was chatting with jamie stewart not too long ago and he kind of mentioned that colorado kid perhaps distilled king's it distilled king's ambition to boil down the notion of being okay with the unknown and it might be more successful than Buick. So for that reason alone, I thought Jamie was so brilliantly encompassed what I feel is totally accurate, but let's do Colorado Kid as a very effective and helpful little palate cleanser that will prepare you for Buick. I think that, yeah, final answer, let's do that. So I think that leads us to the end, dear ones. I hope we did Buick some justice. It is a tricky book. It is an emotionally rich book. And I encourage some of the haters out there to reconsider and perhaps give it a second chance or read it for the first time. It is worth your time, guys. It is worth your analysis, close reading, investigation. It's worth it. So that's my final thoughts. In terms of questions, I have a zillion. I have a zillion questions for From a Buick 8, but that's because you're supposed to. So um, I started to write down and then we got like 20 plus and I was like, you know, yes, there are many, many questions. But I think at the end of this story, King wants you to let it go. And he even tells one of the characters, I believe it's Sandy, that with something as monumental a mystery as this one, you can't let it take over your life slash destroy your life. You can only control what you can control and you have to let it go. And so with that, I'm letting go of those Buick questions in the hopes that Colorado Kid will assist you on the path back to from a Buick 8 and that you'll enjoy it as much as I did. So coming up next on the year of underrated Stephen King in the next couple weeks, we are headed back to the Cadet as I crack open Wizard and Glass for the first time. I finished The Wastelands shortly before Christmas last year and had an absolutely wonderful time chatting and distilling that amazing book. Wow, what a thrill ride that was. And so as far as I know, Roland Deschain is on Blame the Monorail headed to nowhere good and headed there fast. And I'm really excited to rejoin him and everybody. I'm going to get that novel started here really quick. And in between, stay tuned for some thoughts on the new Firestarter film adaptation coming out here shortly, as well as a few more constant reader interviews with some King friends of mine, precious podcast hosts. So those will be coming at you soon here in the next few weeks. 
once more if you haven't given the show a five star yet if you would please do so that would be amazing if you could head over to apple podcasts and click five stars today that would make me very happy it would make me smile a a lot i would smile quite a bit for you and i would smile even bigger if you would take a few precious moments to jot down some nice things about the show so we can hook in some more king readers some more new king readers some new fans uh, fans young and old seasoned and brand bright-eyed and bushy-tailed brand new (laughs) that's our goal here but once more if you haven't already you can always head over to underrated sk at gmail to say hello chat about any of the past episodes please say hi anytime as I check my email early and often and would love to correspond with all of you guys regarding these King titles, past episodes, and novels I've yet to read. You could help me get excited for them, prepare me for what's ahead, um, all the good stuff. So wherever you are in the world, please take care. Thank you so very much for listening. I will be back very soon. Talk to you then. Bye-bye.